Welcome to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast, episode 67. My name is Alina Warwick, and today we have Sahar Rokes on the show. But before we continue with this episode, if you are listening to the show and it brings you value, please share some love by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you're listening to this. Your comment may be featured in one of my future episodes, so stay tuned and connected. That basically the government doesn't recognize it. They basically started persecuting a lot of people. My dad's uncle actually got murdered. I mean, murdered as of like executed in prison because of it. People who were kind of involved very much, they became prisoners and for a long time, like 10 years, 12 years sentences, a lot of them got executed or they got tortured and they died under torture. Sahar was born in Iran at a point where not every religion was acceptable by the government. If people were not practicing an acceptable religion, you were banned from government work or school and you were persecuted. One of Sahar's family members was actually executed in prison because of his religious beliefs. The government put extreme pressure to control everyone's religion beliefs. So Sahar's parents were laid off from work and they had no other choice but become entrepreneurs. Even then, when Sahar's mom's business was thriving, the government tried to go in and shut her down. So Sahar's journey to America was definitely a struggle with the government interfering in her freedom to leave the country. At 25 years old, after fighting to get a passport, she finally was approved. She got into the biotech field and after working at different biotech companies, she quit to stay home and take care of her kids. She started Spice of Life at 44 years old, where she creates delicious Persian sauces with amazing herbs and spices. But get this, She never wanted to become an entrepreneur and never imagined to own her own company. So her immigrant entrepreneurial journey is definitely one of a kind. So let's dive right in. Great. Sahar, thank you so much for coming on the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. I truly appreciate your time and I'm so, so excited to hear all about your journey. So welcome to the show. Thank you. It's an honor. Let's talk about your immigrant journey. Tell us where you're from and when did you come to the United States? I am from Iran. I arrived in the U.S. end of May 2001, almost 20 years ago. Yes. Got it. And how old were you? I was 25. 25. Okay. So what was it like growing up in Iran? Well, it was complicated. I was born before the Islamic Revolution in 1979. That's when it happened. And I don't remember any of the like riots and, you know, all this stuff that happened during the revolution. But I remember that like few years after that, our lives changed dramatically. My parents were both government employees before the revolution. And two years after, about 1981, they both got let go of their jobs because of the religion beliefs that they had. So my mom was a pre-K teacher. And she was a third year student at the university. And my dad was a public health employee. And I remember that we sold our house, we sold our car um, just to get by. And my parents actually started their own journey of entrepreneurship, basically. (laughs) Wow. So they were kind of like forced into entrepreneurship. 
Yes, yes. It was kind of a forced curse or maybe a luck or a good thing. Blessing (laughs) in disguise. Yes, exactly. And tell me, what was the religion and what was going on during that time? So the religion is a Baha'i religion that basically the government doesn't recognize it. They basically started persecuting a lot of people. My dad's uncle actually got murdered. I mean, murdered as of like executed in prison because of it. People who were kind of involved very much, they became prisoners and for a long time, like 10 years, 12 years sentences, a lot of them got executed or they got tortured and they died under torture. And then they let go of every government employees or in that case, my mother was also attending university. Um, Higher education got banned for us. So they kind of thought that putting people under pressure, they might change their religion. That was exactly the reason. So they thought, okay, this is not a good religion and we don't want these people around. Either they change to Islam or we're going to pressure them. That was the whole point of it. It's still going on. Not as bad because the United Nations kind of stepped in. But still a lot of like persecution is still going on. They still don't let Baha'is to go to university, higher education. Is it just that religion or any other religion that is not Islamic? It's not any religion. Okay. There are some pressures on other religions like Christianity and especially Judaism with Israel going on. But they recognize those religions because they were before Islam. Mm-hmm. Basically, some Muslims believe that Muhammad is the last prophet. And then after him, there shouldn't be any more prophets. So they don't recognize any prophet after Muhammad. And Baha'ism is very new. It's actually about 200 years old. So they didn't recognize it. So they persecute everybody. Wow. It's so interesting to hear that you guys have experience because I know my grandparents have experienced some religion persecution in Russia as well. To me, that just seems so, so long ago. They were Christians and they also had, you know, people were thrown into jail and all kinds of just horrible things happened to it. And to have your family go through it, you know, just it feels so far away, but to have your family go through it is just insane. But thank you so much for sharing that. So what happened after that? Your parents, did they leave the country or they kind of just started their own businesses and kind of try to live as they created their own businesses? Well, back then, plus all the persecution, they wouldn't let anybody leave. <laughs> all the oh, Baha'is wow. passports were, yeah, were confiscated. So what they wouldn't give anybody any passport. So anybody who wanted to leave, they had to leave illegally. My parents, with me being young, I think they decided to stay. So they both started their own business. My dad basically started a business with a few of his friends. And they started a notebook factory for schools. And my mom, on the other hand, she tried different avenues. She first started contracting with like, some clothes factory for children. Mm-hmm. Then she tried weaving some rugs. <laughs> and then none of those work. And then she took uh, beauty classes and started her own beauty salon, which she loved. And she basically did that for 38 years, I think. Then she retired last year. But there were some problems through that as well, because she got very famous in our city. And she got a lot of clients. And she hired a lot of employees. The government didn't like that. Wow. <laughs> and then they came around saying, you know, you wet your hands 
and you basically dirty the people, you cut their hair or do anything wet. So you're not allowed to see any Muslims. You can work for other mm-hmm. other religions. And my mom is like, well, I'm not going to ask anybody who come in what religion right. they are. But they had my mother put a sign up. She said, they said, okay, you're not asking, but like you have to put a sign up. So she put a sign up saying, this business is just for Baha'is and minorities. But the people didn't mind it, but the sign had to be there. And once in a while, they would all like, police actually would come in and shut down the business because they liked it. (laughs) And I remember when I was young and it was just before a new year and you know how beauty salons are like before new year, they're very busy. So they shut down my mom's business and the clients were like, we're not going anywhere else. You have to take care of us. So (laughs) my mother basically set up one of the rooms in our house. And I remember like people sitting in a living room waiting (laughs) for their turn, which is chaos. But, Uh... you know, yeah, but we had all these going on. But still, my mom persisted and it Mm -hmm. went strong till she shut down, basically retired, let's say. I love it. I love how creative people can get, you know, under pressure. Yes. You know, in a garage, in the living room. Yes, just come on through. We'll make it happen. Yes, exactly. Do not stop. So all the immigrants listening, oh my goodness, wow, we're such grateful and blessed to be in such a country with so many opportunities that no one is coming to shut you down. So exactly. So so listening to your mom go through that, we got to be staying creative and on point every single day. So thank you so much for sharing that. I love it. Sure. So Sahar, what happened at 25 years old? How did you come to the United States? And what was that journey like? Well, as a young person, when I finished high school, I wanted to have higher education, to be honest. But you're not allowed in Iran. As a, I even like signed up, but they have a section that says, like, what's your religion? And in the form that you apply for mm-hmm. university. And like, there is no Baha'i in it. So there is this thing saying, okay, if none of these religion matches you, like, say what religion you are. And so you say it, and then... They don't say anything till you go pick up. You have to go and pick up the card from a place just before the entrance. And you go there and they're like, sorry, we don't have your card. Wow. So that happened when I was 18. And after that, I really wanted to leave, but there was no passport. They don't give you really passport. And a few of my friends were living illegally through Turkey. So I pressured my mother <laughs> and my dad you got creative yes (laughs) how about I go I go with them but my mom said nope you're young I don't know any of the people who like they knew the people who were going but you know the people who are handling those people and my mother basically said if I can get a passport she would let me go but not illegally no way Mm -hmm. so I went and applied for passport when I was 19 and then after that I went back and forth They said no, right? But they say no, but they say, okay, there is another form you're going to fill out. And they ask you all these questions about what you do and all about your life. Why do you want to leave the country and all that? And there is someone else. It's like a government employee who interviews you again after you get rejected. Mm -hmm. 
and nothing. They say, no, nope. every week you go and check and they say, no, it's not ready. You're not allowed. And then at 23, I think, long story short, it went on for a few years. And then around 23, I actually did an appeal in a court. Mm-hmm. I wrote a letter to the court explaining my situation. And after that, I think it took about a few months. Then I received my passport after about five years. Yeah, five years later. Oh, my goodness. Yes, five (laughs) years later. (laughs) So back then, my aunts, they left illegally when I was 14. So they were here in America. Oh, okay. In D.C. One of them actually sponsored me. And I went through a religion refugee through this company called Hyas, which was built during World War II to place all the refugees from Germany. But it's still going on and helps all the minorities around the world Mm -hmm. to get to freedom, basically. So I went through that. Their headquarters, I think, is in New York. So my aunt applied through that. And they called me from Austrian embassy a few months after saying that my visa is ready. And I went and got my visa and I left December 2000 to Vienna, where I didn't know anybody. So there is a person in an airport holding a sign with your name on it. (laughs) Wow. And so they placed us in like an apartment. It was an apartment. We were eight people in a three, very small three bedroom apartment living there. So they dropped me off there. So I went basically with two suitcases. Where was this at? New York? In Austria. 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 Okay. Yes. Okay. So I had to be in Austria because in Iran, there is no American embassy. So I had to go. Yes, I had to go through that. So I was in Vienna for about five months to go through all the legal uh, requirements of applying for the religion refugee. And then I had interviews. And after about four and a half months, I got a visa to come to the U.S. And you joined your aunt in D.C.? Yes, she was living here and I lived with them when I came for Mm -hmm. about four or five months. And then I got my own place as of like, you know, I got a job and I got to college at the same time and started to be independent. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Okay, so what was the plan? You wanted to come to America and do what? To just get a couple of jobs and get your life situated or go to school? What did you envision? I envisioned actually going to school and getting my degree and working, yeah, working the job I like, to be honest. So that was my American dream. Being free, to be honest, it's like not have to be dealing with all the stuff that everybody deals with in Iran. Yeah. And did you know English before you came? My English was pretty good. My vocab was very good, Okay. but not speaking. So (laughs) not speaking and not understanding that much. So language was one of my hard parts to get used to like language barrier. So I worked in retail and stock in the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then I worked on a floor. After a few months, I got promoted to be on the floor. But I had nightmares about answering phones. (laughs) I was okay face to face. But answering phones, I couldn't understand anybody. So it was really bad. It was like every time the phone rang, my heart rate would go up <laughs> because I'm like, I, I don't understand anybody. So I would get somebody that is close by. Can you answer the phone? 
and, and then just run yeah. <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> run away from it yeah <laughs> got it okay so Zahar tell me a little bit about the struggles that you had to go through when you first came at 25 years old to DC so I'm hearing a little bit of English barrier do you have any other struggles that you went through yeah basically feeling lonely not having my family like my close family and my friends that was very hard back then there was no Skype or anything so mm-hmm. you would talk to your parents through phone um, and that was expensive so you would do it very quickly like maybe 15 minutes once a week yeah. um, that was hard what I did I basically buried myself into busy life of working full-time and attending college full-time so I had no time to think mm-hmm. distractions. <laughs> about, yes distractions yeah busyness was my basically a way to go Okay, so where did you attend college and what did you study? Well, I first I had to go through uh, Montgomery College, which is a county college, just to get my English a little bit better to start taking classes that I wanted. Then I went to University of Maryland and did cell biology and molecular genetics. Mm-hmm. That took about five years because I did one year of kind of getting used to and doing all the requirements that I needed. Got it. So you studied cell biology? Yes. Okay. Yes. So it's going to be really interesting to hear how Spice of Life came to be. <laughs> so let's hear about the journey. What did you do after college and how did you open up Spice of Life? After I graduated college, to be honest, because my mom was an entrepreneur, my dad was an entrepreneur, and I saw the struggles they went through. I mm-hmm. never wanted to be an entrepreneur. No way. (laughs) No, I didn't. It's just like I told you the struggles that my mother went through. It was like on my face all the time. So I was like, nope, I'm going to work for a company till I retire and just go to work, do my work and come back home. No work at home. No thinking about work. (laughs) So that was my thing. I'm going to take care of my family. That was like because my mother was very busy. Both of them. They were very busy. So We kind of like, that's why I like cooking because I cooked a lot at home. It was kind of like, you know, not having family all the time when there was holidays and all that. It was Mm -hmm. kind of like I wanted what I didn't have to provide for my children and husband. Mm -hmm. So I started working for a biotech company after I graduated for a few years. Then I got married and basically our situation was like I wanted to stay at home for two years after having children Mm -hmm. that was actually set before getting married (laughs) I knew I was gonna do that (laughs) I love it (laughs) so so I quit when I had my first one so I stayed at home ended up staying at home five years because we had a second one after two and a half years and I stayed at home for about five years and I went back when my second one could go to nursery so I went back for nine months I think to be honest it wasn't working out it's like children my husband was working like overtime all the time because he was a director and it was just too much that I went back to the same work and I knew you know the manager was the same manager I had and he was very nice to me he offered me to take either five days eight hours or four days ten hours and I was like I'll take it four day ten hours because you know it's like I have one day off that I can do stuff yeah but it 
ended up being four day each day, about 12 hours. I would go to work around 6 30 in the morning. I wouldn't get home till like seven at night. So from being a stay at home mom, my husband started being a stay- kind of a stay- like taking care of everything. And it just didn't work out for our family, to be honest. So I quit. I quit and I was kind of lost, to be honest. It was like I was very overwhelmed and depressed about all the situation was going on. And I always liked cooking. Cooking is kind of lab work for me, to be honest. Aww, awesome. <laughs> it, it is kind of a lab work because you have to measure and you have to like make sure everything is like right and everything goes well together. Mm-hmm. So I like doing that. But I was overwhelmed. I was depressed. I was lost in the middle of all that. And I hired a life coach. That was my, actually, my husband's suggestion, uh, which ended up actually working out pretty well. So I worked with a life coach to kind of find my interest and like what I really like to do and ended up basically cooking was the thing I really like to do. And I have time for myself and for the children. So I started a blog right after like about a few months after I quit the job I started a cooking blog and from there kind of thought about what I can do more than just a blog that would help also people because really interested in nutrition and health perspective because I worked in a health kind of perspective where I worked we did work to provide research materials and stuff for drug companies for Alzheimer cancer and cardiovascular disease I was like prevention also was part of my passion kind of prevention of all the diseases so I started reading a lot of books about nutrition and you know brain health and gut health and I read a lot of research about them and I felt like you know maybe I can help to promote that with starting a company like the mission is for health and Mm -hmm. the mission is everything is natural there's no processed food and being Persian it's kind of like okay this is what I'm really good at and I love and also when I had children it was so hard to cook especially little children like from scratch yeah it takes a long time (laughs) and that was actually one of the things that like you know the light bulb kind of like came on yeah yes it came on that it's kind of oh you know probably all the moms have the same problem. Yes. It's like there is no time to cook. <laughs> and most of Persian food, it takes a long time. It has mm-hmm. to simmer. Just preparing and cooking. Everything takes all day to cook one meal. So I kind of thought, you know, that would be a good idea to help others who are very busy to enjoy a healthy meal without having to chop or shop or like do all those thinking Mm -hmm. just something prepared that they can just pour over their protein or just have a pasta or rice with it so that's when spice of life came to life (laughs) wow oh my goodness amazing stories okay so I gotta ask Zahar how long were you working for corporate until you decided to quit let's say 2007 to 2011 so that was four years. Okay. And I went back again for another nine months. Okay. So four years and then you took a five-year break and then you went back for a couple more months. Yes. Got it. And how old were you when you started Spice of Life? 44. 
I'm 45 now, so it's been since September. Okay. <laughs> it hasn't been a year yet. <laughs> yes, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Almost a year, a couple more months, and we're right yes. around the corner. Wow, yes. I love it. And so tell us more, a little bit more about Spice of Life. I saw on your website, you got, is it like salsa, the the canning jars? Um, what do you, do you sell these online? Tell us a little bit more about Spice of Life. Sure. As I said, it's kind of like my health background and my Persian background got together. Mm-hmm. And so these are simmer sauces that you can add to your own protein. They're vegan. They're very diet friendly. They're gluten free. They're non-GMO, all natural, no preservative in them. And they are in a jar. So they're simmer sauces that you can add like chicken, lamb, or if you're vegan, you can add chickpeas maybe uh-huh. uh, to the eggplant tomato sauce. We have just two skews at the moment, working on a third one. Nice. <laughs> and yeah, so it's basically less than 20 minutes. Your dinner would be ready and it's all fresh. So I'll do all the work. I wear all the hats at the moment. So mm-hmm. I do the manufacturing, I do the sales, I do the marketing. It takes about two days to prepare the food because there's a lot of cleaning and chopping the vegetables going on. So you add those to your protein and then dinner is ready. I love it. I love the eggplant tomato one. I'm looking through the ingredients and there's saffron in there. I know saffron is really expensive and it's super healthy. So I'm so excited to try that. Yes. Okay, so you went to the life coach and they kind of figured out what you were best at and what you enjoyed doing. You started a blog and then what happened? Did you go to farmer's market to sell these products or you kind of just put it online? What were the beginning steps like for you? So the beginning steps, I started listening to a lot of podcasts and reading books about entrepreneurship. And also I have few mentors that I kind of follow I don't know if they know they're my mentors, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Marie Forleo was one of them. And yes. I actually listened to a lot of her podcasts, read her book and took her business class, the B school. The B school. Yes. Yes. I took that class and that actually kind of got me to start the business, but I didn't start with farmer's market. I basically went all in. First, I developed the recipes. I gave them out to people to try and give me feedbacks, like friends and family to, you know, try them and give me some feedback about them because they're fusion. They're not completely Persian. So Mm. I have my own kind of twist in them. Your own spice to it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So I gave them to friends and family with different tastes to tell me if they like it, what do they think about it? So I did all that and then I basically went on and started the process of doing basically uh, registering the company and then because it's food it has a lot of health regulations with it Mm -hmm. so I had to go through a lot of steps of that to do the jars especially in DC they're quite you know the restrictions are very the regulations are very um, tight Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so they're very strict so I did that it took about two years. And then I, you know, hired a graphic designer. I decided on the jar, what kind of jar I want. All that took a long time. And then I hired somebody to do the website for me. So all that took a long time. And it took about two years to launch the products. I started thinking about it 2018. And that's when I think it was April of 2018 that I registered 
the company. Got it, but, got it. You know, the whole thing took a long time to come. So did you have to make these in a commercial kitchen? Yes. So that's, and how that's that one thing. <laughs> that's <laughs> the one thing that is like you can produce jars that are shelf stable or any kind of food around this area in your kitchen. Mm-hmm. You have to use a commercial kitchen and looking into commercial kitchens, they're very expensive. Yeah. If you, you're starting to, you know, start in your own kitchen. So I heard asking around, I heard about kitchen accelerators who help all the startups to kind of have a shared kitchen and use the kitchen space and they charge you less because it's a shared kitchen. Mm-hmm. And then I started basically shopping around. We have like few of them. There are not many choices in the area. That's like I ended up um, in one of them and I started paying, you know, the minimum, which is like I use it six times a month and I pay like a fixed fee for that, mm-hmm. which is not too bad, to mm-hmm. be honest, compared to if you want to get your own kitchen. When you started your website, did you start seeing orders right away? Or what was the marketing like for you? I know you said you passed the jars around to your family and friends. But did you go to Facebook? Did you go to social media to get your name out there? Yes, when the website was up and running, I did also did Facebook and Instagram. These are the two platforms I'm mostly on. And I started doing some marketing on there. And then I found few people who are like not ambassadors. They kind of like promote local companies. Mm-hmm. I gave them my product. They didn't like charge for a sponsorship or anything. I gave them my product and then they put it up there and talked about it. And that was very nice. I did that with about two and then another person who is ambassador she actually bought my product and she really liked it so she talked about it and it's on her website um that one of the locals okay yeah that was very nice and then my friends and family started buying from the website but to be honest i didn't get much attraction until i started farmer's market and i started doing wholesale we're in few stores at the moment And I'm doing like, well, it was very hard during pandemic Mm -hmm. because you can't do any demos or tasting. Yeah. (laughs) So it's kind of trust me and buy this thing. Some people trust you, some people don't, you know, so it's a little bit hard to do that, but we're growing. And now the pandemic is kind of going down with vaccinations. So some people actually started asking me to do demos outside Mm -hmm. with like distance and still like wearing masks and eating it a little bit further down but it started growing like people buy when they taste the product Mm -hmm. um, and they trust you um, that okay the product that looks good also tastes good yeah (laughs) (laughs) because it's kind of something that you know Persian food we all know it as like kebabs are very popular. Yeah. A lot of people think like kebabs are the only Persian food. Those are kind of like barbecues, right? It's like you don't do it every day. Simmer sauces are, or we call it stews, are the things that are homemade and you do them at home almost every day. You cook different stews. So this is kind of a like a regular food for Persians yeah. or Iranians. Not a lot of people are familiar with it. So it's yeah. a little bit hard. Okay, I'm saying these things are in it. 
So especially my herb and bean sauce, the things that are in it, if you just think about it, they're like, we don't know how the, that's going to taste like till we taste it. And I have a lot of actually non-Persian friends that they love it because it's very fresh. It's very herby and it's also like tangy. It has a lot mm-hmm. of lime, fresh lime and lemon juice in it. Mm-hmm. So they say it's kind of a, like a Persian pesto for us. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> Can't wait to try it. <laughs> so Sahar, where can our listeners find your products? I know they're online on your website. Did you say you're in local shops as well? Yes, we're in a few local shops in D.C. We're in three Rockville uh, shops, um, Yekta Market, which is Persian market, Grosvenor Market, Dawson's Market. And we're in Shop Made in D.C., which is all this stuff. Basically, it's like local in that shop. It's a very pretty shop. They have uh-huh. art plus like they have food. It's uh-huh. very interesting. Shop Made in D.C., they have four locations. And we have Old City Market and Odd Provisions are those um, places that we're at. I do pop up sometimes. If you follow me on Instagram or Facebook, you can see where I'm going to be like every pop-up like last weekend I did a main street pop-up on Dupont Circle mm-hmm. uh, which was 55 vendors uh, from local um, artists and foods and every entrepreneur so that was very fun and I do some pop-ups in farmers markets as well so awesome. if you follow me on Instagram you can see the dates when it's coming up oh okay so I cannot wait for your product to get to Whole Foods oh thank you (laughs) yes me neither I'm kind of like you know Whole Foods takes a long time so they are in the process of reviewing it since oh good since October (laughs) (laughs) good stay strong (laughs) you'll get there (laughs) yes hopefully yes Yeah. So did you have to raise any capital to start your business? I know you quit your your corporate. Um, Did you have some savings on the side? Did you know you were going to start a business or you quit and you had no idea what the plan was going to be? I quit and I had no idea what the plan was going to be, <laughs> to be <Wow>. honest. <laughs> Did you have any savings to launch your, your website, your business, your products? To be honest, no. And I didn't get any investments. Um, I basically went as it, like, went and, it, you know, I went on it, like, as we go. So oh, got it. I opened the credit card, to be honest. Uh-huh. I still have a lot of balance on it. So that's one way. And another way was, like, some saving uh, that we had. So hopefully I can pay it back. It's my children's college saving. So <laughs> it's kind of like I took it from there and started, yes. So I know you mentioned that you had a life coach and then you had a couple of mentors. Where did you find these mentors? Do you think they were beneficial to launch your business? Yes. To be honest, I started listening or reading her first book, which was about, I think, 15 years ago or 12 years ago, something like that. It was a long time ago. I read her book and I was receiving her emails also. She has this thing saying that you are the only one that has a gift, mm-hmm. like the only gift, you know, you, everybody has their own gift and you're the mm-hmm. only one in the world that has that gift. So it's very interesting the way she says it. I don't remember it exactly, but yeah. it's kind of like all the stuff that she like sends out the podcasts and seeing all those entrepreneurs on her podcast and reading all the books, it kind of like got me that 
I can do it too. But it is pretty hard. But I think if you're persistent and you believe in yourself, you can do it. And I found the other mentor I have, Ali Ball. I found her on Facebook and Instagram. And she mentors people with packaged food goods. And she has courses to kind of help you to get to wholesale accounts, which is very interesting because when I have no business background, everything is science. So getting into the business, it was very interesting how you need to you know, approach. Because first off, just before I launched, Kihi is, was interested in my product. And the buyer actually asked me to send samples and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I did. And he's like, where is the sales sheet and price sheet? And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> yes, exactly. So after I took the class with Ali Ball, it's like, oh, okay, I need to do all these. And that helped me a lot to kind of get on board with like, what's going on with the whole world of CPG and packaged goods and wholesale and, you know, what I need to provide for people to be interested in just like even tasting my thing or ordering them. That was actually very helpful Uh uh, courses that she offers, which is called Retail Ready. And we also have a, like a Facebook that are all the people who do packaged food, mm-hmm. who are from like launched at like 10 years ago or who are launching now. So any question you have, you go on that Facebook and you're like, okay, I'm doing this. What do you think I should do? And then, you know, <laughs> people with more experience will come up and say, oh, you do this or you do that. It's very like very, very good community and helpful to be mm-hmm. in, to be honest. That helped me with the business aspect a lot. And you mentioned you were reading a couple of books. What were those books? The books I read is the Murray Forleo one is Everything is Figureoutable. Okay. And that's one of the books. And the business books, I think it was Lean Startup was one of them that okay. I read. And then Lean Analytics is another one for accounting. By the way, I'm very bad at numbers also. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, I, I kind of like push them under the rug. And then, you know, when they need to be taken care of. But now I actually also hired Sarah Delavan, who is a consultant accountant for uh-huh. food companies, So, which is great. So she has like an Excel sheet that she put up and then you can like put in your numbers. And then we have this consulting and talking that, okay, I need to do this to have more benefits or I need to do that to be profitable or I need to do that at least to kind of you know, not lose money by the end of the year. Like, it's very, very helpful. I'm doing that as well. So I have these three mentors that have been helping me throughout (laughs) throughout my journey. Yes. Yeah. And I hear that all the time, Zahar, on this show that mentors are super powerful in our entrepreneur journey. So it's really nice to hear that you grabbed a hold of some of these mentors and continue to work with them to see some amazing success. So Zahar, I wanted to switch gears and I wanted to ask if you can share some of the mistakes that you went through. You're still kind of fairly new. What are some of the mistakes that you learned in the beginning stages that you can share for our listeners who do have a product line business or who are thinking of starting one? Well, let's say, I think one of the thing is like, you don't have to be perfect. Like nothing would be perfect for you to start. 
I think you have to take a risk and start when you're good and then grow and learn as you go because mm-hmm. nothing is going to be perfect you think it's perfect like I actually had everything set my jars set and like labels and everything and then for the pricing the pricing was too high I first had a 16 ounce jar and I thought okay this would you know be good for four people and most of the people who would buy it is like you know usually have children or their families so I started doing the six ounces and when I did the pricing it was too high just before I launched like a month before I launched so I changed the jar to Mm -hmm. 12 ounce that took another nutrition nutritional fact pricing because I had to submit another recipe to them you know it was it was a cost again and Mm -hmm. I had to change all of my labels (laughs) Wow. to smaller ones and with the new nutritional fact and you know I had some stuff on the 16 ounce because it was a bigger jar I had you know the story about me a bit plus all the other things on it I had to mm-hmm. kind of take some some stuff out that were not necessary to be there because now the jar is smaller there's no room in it and then so I went through that like a month before I launch and after <laughs> it's funny because after like okay I launched and you know the jars were ready and the labels were all ready and then now I putting the labels on and there's a wrinkle in the bottom of it because oh, no. the jar is different from the last one it's oh, it, oh, even no. though it's taller but it has like a little curve at the end of it so then I have to go back to my designer and say, can you please redo this sizing again? And so, you know, I ordered like 500 labels. I had to go through them. I, I couldn't, I couldn't just throw them away. So the first 500 jars were all like a little bit, it's not much, but a little bit of a wrinkle at the bottom. But, yeah. you know, you have to do what you have to do. And it's kind of like, sometimes not everything works your way and it's okay it's like you know you learn as you go and it's okay not to be perfect it's good enough sometimes you know yes (laughs) so yeah don't try to be perfect because then you go in and you feel like oh you have to change this you have to change that because you didn't know because you weren't in the business you didn't know what was going on so yes And thank you so much for sharing that because I love talking about mistakes or failures a lot on this show because we cannot go into a business thinking that everything is going to go smooth, like you said. And if there's a mistake, tweak it, change something and move on. And it's just so powerful to hear all these stories to keep us positive throughout all of the mistakes that we do encounter on a daily basis. And so thank you so much for sharing that. (laughs) So Sahar, what does the American dream mean to you? American dream? I would think like for me, freedom is one of them because I didn't have them growing up. You know, I was also persecuted in school with my teachers and everything once in a while like seeing that you can be whoever you are in America people might judge you but they won't prosecute you for that so freedom is one of the things and I believe in America you can do anything if you put your mind in it you know I came with no money nothing I went to school I support myself totally like I worked 
40 hour week, 35, 40 hour week. And I took classes full time. And, you know, I studied at night when I got home, but I still did it. I still finished it. And, you know, and now look at me, I'm doing, you know, I started a company all by myself with credit card money, basically. (laughs) And I'm trying to build that passion and build the company. And I didn't have any business background. It's just, I thought I wanted to do it. And I really like saw my passion in it and I went for it and I'm learning. I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I get a lot of help, but that's what American Dream is all about. There are a lot of people you can get help from. So Mm -hmm. that's what I think. I think America is like full of opportunities and we just have to decide what we want to do. Awesome. And freedom is really, really big to a lot of immigrants. So thank you for pointing that out because I feel growing up here in America, although I was, you know, I came here when I was four years old, but freedom is so, so big because we live in this country with full of opportunities. And like you said, you might get judged, which is okay. We get judged by our family and friends every day. So, you know, (laughs) getting the judgment is brush it off and and go forward. But, you know, where other countries are being persecuted, racism, people are being, you know, just communism, people have gone through so many different challenges that America does not see on a daily basis. So immigrants are doing amazing work out there. So Sahar, what are some things you would advise the next aspiring immigrant that wants to start their own business? And I know you mentioned a couple of things already, mentors and reading books, but is there anything else that you would like to add to the immigrant that's listening to you right now that wants to start their business? Sure. Being flexible and perseverance. Those are the other two because you come across a lot of rejection as an entrepreneur. A lot of people might tell you, this is not a good idea. What are you doing? What are you thinking about? Like you should, (laughs) are you serious? You want to start something like this? Like, you know, you might get a lot of rejection. You might get a lot of negativity. But if you think, like, if your gut tells you that this is the right thing or you have a good intuition about it, then go for it. Don't listen to people and be flexible and, you know, persistent. Then you get results. Yes. I love it. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for coming on to the Immigrant Entrepreneurs Podcast. You are just showing proof that anyone can be self-taught and just learn everything it is as they go with creating a business. So Sahar, thank you so much for coming on the show and I truly appreciate your time and I'm honored to share your story. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. If there are any links that were mentioned in this episode, make sure to check them out on my website under this episode to find all the links conveniently located in the show notes. I just wanted to ask for a quick favor. If you could please leave a review wherever you're at listening to this podcast. Also, if you're an immigrant entrepreneur and would love to be on my podcast, please email me and we'll get connected. I'll see you guys all next time for another exciting and impactful episode. Take care.